a lot of important information lies in our sadness and the emotions that we don't want to feel are precisely the ones that we can learn a lot about ourselves from. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Michelle Wang, who is an experiential psychologist. So Michelle is obviously a psychologist by trade, but she really embraces things kind of outside the norm and outside the box in the psychology world. So rather than just doing always the traditional, you sit on this couch and talk to me about your feelings, she likes to do more experience-based things, whether that be like a role-playing therapy or various movement therapies. And she has created something here in the city called SF Momentary, where she gets groups of people together to sit down, have a really, really nice, nourishing dinner together, and talk about you know your feelings and your experiences over that dinner rather than in a traditional psychology setting and with, you know, um, different strangers around instead of just you and a psychologist one-on-one. She has also partnered up with a company here in San Francisco called The Blind Cafe to do something called Couples in the Dark, where people um, do that whole entire SF momentary thing of, din- of dinner um, with some strangers. But in this case, it is in complete pitch black where you cannot see a thing while you're having dinner and while you're going over these exercises to kind of strengthen your bond with your partner. So um, we'll go over that and all the other things that Michelle does that are kind of in this experiential psychologist umbrella. Without further ado, here is experiential psychologist. Michelle, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Blake. Absolutely. So I guess my first question would be doing things that are a little bit different than normal. So some of these like experiential treatments that you're doing, is that it all like looked down upon or looked at sideways by other psychologists? Like, is that a weird thing for you when you're talking with other psychologists and you mention like some type of therapy and they're just like, oh, okay, like you're, you're one of those types of psychologists. I, I think that these things are, I mean, that's, that's such a big part of human nature, right? To sort of um, be a little bit slow, slower on the receiving, on receiving sort of new information and new ways of um, doing things that, that I think that, you know, people don't like to fix things that they don't feel are broken, right? Um, and I think that that's probably a big reason why so many different ways of healing are um, looked upon as uh, perhaps redundant or unnecessary or just flat out strange um, because they're, they don't really see, a lot of people don't see the system or um, mental health the way it is right now as necessarily broken. And I'm not necessarily sure that I would view it as broken, but I, I would say that... Um, there are a, a huge, huge, you know, kind of variety, a, a wealth of knowledge out there that we have just not tapped into at all um, that, you know, could improve uh, a lot of lives. And, and sort of, we, I don't, I just, I'm a firm believer of not having to, not needing to suffer more than we already have to. Yeah. So if we can really tap into other ways of healing, then why not? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. So let's start to talk about some of the like treatment modalities that you use and ways of helping people that people wouldn't know about. So you already mentioned uh, like drama therapy, which I have so many questions about that. But first, just like rattle off some of the different things that you're using. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I call it drama therapy because it's, um, you know, I, I don't really, I, I don't think that it's, um, it, I'm not using it in this sort of like, uh, you know, this formal uh, formal definition of drama therapy. But what, what I mean by drama therapy is anything that uh, requires you to sort of stand up and not be too much in your head, mm-hmm. right? So it's not this sort of neck up intellectual conversation that we're having about your relationship. And when I say that, I mean when I see couples in couples therapy. Yeah. Um, but rather sort of a um, get into your body sort of experience experiential you know kind of embodying your feelings um because we do we do our bodies carry a lot of our our joys and our pains and our bodies very rarely lie about it whereas our our minds very frequently tell us lots of stories that may not be accurate so when we get into our bodies and we are able to sort of um express ourselves with our partners in that way um it's very powerful i have i'm so interested in this so First of all, it's funny when you came over before the interview, we were talking about Arrested Development. And this also totally makes me think of Arrested Development, where Tobias and Lindsay are seeing a marriage therapist and they decide to like role play and swap roles and they're up like acting like they're the other person. And mm-hmm. it ends up really not going well. But um, what, like, I guess what, how you said, like trying to act out your emotions, like, I don't even, I don't, yeah, like, I wouldn't know where to begin. Like yeah. if somebody said like act out your emotions, I would, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. That's like right. act out the color blue right now. It's like, wow. Um, I don't know. Right. Right. No, I mean that to, to act out a color, to act out a, a feeling, to act out a concept, you know, that we're so, we're so, this is exact. I mean, it's such a good point because this is exactly why we have trouble with the more um, ephemeral, uh, parts of our brain or our parts of our uh, lived experience is that, you know, we're, we're so dependent on words and we're so dependent on rationalization and, and using our intellect. So acting out the color blue is actually a really great example because I used to work with veterans and, um, and a lot of them were diagnosed with PTSD and they had some, some variation of depression and anxiety and, and, you know, trauma related stress. And uh, they often had a very limited vocabulary when it came to uh, describing emotions. But but after some after some time, they would be a lot of them would be able to say sort of what color they're currently feeling, what texture their feelings sort of had the form of, right? Mm. A sticky texture, a rough texture, right? Or cold, or or hot, or or you know, basically anything you can think of. Um, outside of the traditional ways of describing emotions like angry and, you know. Yeah. Which can be quite stifling because I don't think that anger always describes my my version of anger, right? I mean, um, so, so, and, so I used to do that a lot with the veterans and I do that now in my therapy as well with, with couples. Um, it does require you to really get out of your head and really experience, um, experience where in your body you're feeling it, first of all, right? Uh, in your head, in your clenched jaw, perhaps, in, in your throat, in a sort of a swelling in your chest or a sinking feeling in your stomach. And then to really kind of dive into that and really um, I try to identify the colors and the textures, at, at almost giving it a personality. Mm. So they're almost giving you like an autobiography talking about their physical experience, like talking about... Yeah, talking about their emotional experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, they are. And 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 so I think that's one form of drama what I call drama therapy is kind of um having them stand up and 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 act out say um I want one person to um you know use their bodies and without any uh any language, any any intellect or language or words, I want you to act out the 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 emotion of excitement. Right. And so you can't use any words. You can use sounds. You can use any sounds that don't make any sense, but you just can't use words. Right. And then what your what your partner what I ask the partner to do is stand in front of them and mirror everything that they're doing. And that's to trigger the mirror neurons to kind of trigger the empathy um, to sort of have the other person literally embody that part, the other partner's uh emotional experience Mm, that makes so much sense yeah because as soon as you start um having this shared experience with somebody else it it, i guess breaks the ice to have more empathy through the rest of your discussion or through Mm -hmm. the rest of you know that interaction Mm -hmm. that's really cool there's one that i do a lot which is uh something you've probably heard of already uh which is kind of eye gazing so having the couple's sort of stare into each other's eyes for a very, very long time. I think it's a I think it's mostly perceived as a long time because this isn't something we normally do, but it's really actually just ten minutes. Um and in a lot of the articles I've been reading lately, they talk about doing it for twenty minutes and having a very uh, psychedelic experience. Um but what I do in session is only ten minutes because um, you know, a lot of people just aren't used to doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so what that, you know, after it, it takes about five minutes for people's awkwardness and laughter and giggling and kind of, you know, to kind of subside. And then the next five minutes to actually just look at each other. And it's something that a lot of people never do with their partners. Absolutely. That's something that um, that was discussed on another episode was the concept of eye contact and how. Okay, you just said 10 minutes doesn't seem like very long. I bet you like 0% of the people listening to this have ever just stared at someone for 10 minutes before. Yeah. You know, like that is an unbelievably long time to just look at somebody and how bizarre that somebody could be your life partner mm-hmm. and that you could be married to them for, let's say, six year, 60 years or something. And it's like you'll never have just looked at that person for even maybe two minutes without talking, you Mm -hmm. know, and just stared. I mean, you can stare at somebody if they're not staring at you, you know, like if they're sleeping or whatever, like that's like, oh, I've looked at them for like two minutes. But like looking at each other for two minutes is just non-existent, you know? Yeah. No, I I, and looking and and bring and piggybacking off of that, I think looking at oneself in the mirror for purposes uh, not not related to kind of grooming yourself. Right. Or, or applying anything onto your face, but just simply looking into your eyes, into your own eyes, into the mirror can be even I, I would argue for a lot of people could be even more terrifying. Totally. Well, you mentioned psychedelic after a certain point. I I could certainly see that with looking at yourself. I guess the hard thing you mentioned, the giggle factor for the first five minutes um, and, you know, with like, I mean, that would be a real therapy, like looking at yourself in the mirror like that. And you and I imagine that you get so much of this when you're asking the couple to look at each other for 10 minutes. It's, it's kind of, I guess it's very similar to meditation. So like a goal of meditation would be to bypass the ego, right? So to like get to this core different type of person that's inside of you that is not judging or thinking or doing these things. And you mentioned looking in the mirror, looking at yourself in the mirror and not looking at your trying to look at 
you know, how do I look or what's going on with this or what's going on with that? Exactly. I can't imagine how long you would have to be looking at yourself before those sorts of thoughts would fall away. Like just like meditation and with the ego, like I, mm-hmm. you could be looking at yourself for 20 minutes and still once every 10 seconds be like, my eye looks weird or like, what's yeah. going Like, do I have a mustache right now? Like what, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it's just all these thoughts would start to creep into your head, you know? Yeah. I, and I don't think that ever really fully goes away for most of us, you know, even I, I imagine people who have been meditating for thousands and thousands of hours, um, you know, have accumulated that sort of uh, calmness and stillness probably still once in a while have those questions pop in their minds. Right. Um, I don't think that ego ever really kind of goes away for a lot of us. Um, but the idea isn't to eradicate it necessarily, right? At least in this stage of 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 most of our existence. But I think it's really to um, to to see if we can tap into that inner core that you were talking about, even for just a very momentary split second in our partners and ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that's all that matters. I mean, if you get one second of a glimpse at something like that or a feeling like that, it could change your entire life, you know, to, to mm-hmm. feel something like that for a moment. Mm-hmm. So what is the, I guess, goal of the couples therapy version of the like eye contact or, or like, what are, what do you hear people talk about after that? Yeah. Um, I actually don't hear people talking after that, which is <laughs> how I know that uh, they've done it. Uh, they've really kind of gotten a sense of fulfillment from the exercise. Yeah. Um, the, the couples who end up talking a lot about it and go straight back into their heads, um, usually, you know, we, I have them do it again. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I know I think that uh, most of the time I get a lot of couples who, who end up tearing up quite a bit and who end up crying and, and um, you know, to be, I, I, be, I really think that they're, what they've tapped into is uh, see, witnessing their partner's humanity mm. in a way that they probably don't on a day-to-day basis because of because of because of life, right? In general, and particularly, there are certain things that make that even more difficult to do, um, being in a digital age that we're in right now, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, there's so many things um, that make it very difficult for us to tap into one another's humanity on a very kind of deep. You know, using that word psychedelic again, level. Um, and so I think a lot of them end up tearing up because what they see in front of them is not their partner. What they, what they begin to see is another human being, right? With just an a completely, with a trail of history and experiences and millions upon millions of emotions and thoughts and, and, and those things, the other person witnessing this can never possibly fathom ever. Right. And that that feeling of I will never fully understand my partner or anyone else in this world, for that matter, fully understand because I am not them. That creates a, a, a very powerful. Uh, it, I mean, it kind of reminds us of the poignancy of life. Right. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's moving. <laughs> yeah. I just got chills while you were saying that. That's amazing. And it makes me think that if you. It makes me really want to do an exercise like this. Unfortunately, my wife is away on vacation right now, so it's bad timing. I'll have to just go and stare at myself in the mirror after this. Um, But it is, talk about a uniquely human act, like a a uniquely human experience that you 
could have. We do all these things every single day and we do these things in our relationships that we consider uniquely human because other animals don't do those things or other animals don't do those things in that same way or whatever mm -hmm. it is. That being said, you're still just like freaking checking things off the sheet, you know, of like, oh, this is the part where I buy my wife flowers. This is the part where I do this. This is the part yeah. where I do this thing, whether that be work, relationship, whatever it is. And that's kind of the way an animal is. You put, you know, you put more, th you could say you put more thought into it and therefore, oh, an animal's not going to do that same thing. But, you know, an animal puts some thoughts into going on a hunt or, you know, whatever it is that that animal is doing. Mm -hmm. That time period that, that you were just mentioning where after 10 minutes or after whatever it is and there's almost nothing to say and you just have tears come to your eyes and this this like deep experience that's so difficult to even put into words where like you feel like you just saw the soul of another person and it probably is like explaining the color blue or something right it's something that you just know or that you feel that yeah. and therefore you don't feel the need to talk a lot about it because it's like okay well i just experienced that and i felt that that is something that only a human being could do that is something that no other animal on the planet could ever do yeah and again like what a sad thing that a lot of us could get to the end of our lives and not have an experience like that yeah um yeah there's nothing more there are no faculties that are more uniquely human than the ability to love and the ability to reason right and 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 that's 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 a beautiful 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 thing when we're <clears throat> excuse me when we're facing the person that we we love and we want to spend our lives with or at least a big portion of our lives with and we're able to have such a such an amorphous ephemeral experience to the point where no words can adequately capture that that is an experience that if you've never experienced that in your life go out and experience that or or try to cultivate that because that's 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 when we string up maybe five billion of those experiences, that's that's life, right? And hopefully we can live our lives by the by the time our lives have ended, at least this life has ended, that we can actually, you know, begin we, we can actually look back on it and, and say that was a life worth living. And I think that a huge part of meditation helps with that too. And I have a lot of my couples meditate with me, with each other before they get out of bed in the morning and before they go to sleep at night. Because I think that creates that sort of synergistic kind of um, um, connection that we are completely missing out on. And so you're right. We, we, I have a lot of clients coming in saying, I'm having trouble dating. I'm having trouble maintaining a relationship. And when I hear their thought process of kind of, of their search for love, essentially, it's a checklist. It's a, it's a very long checklist of needs and desires and wants and wishes and demands and that is, um, I think, unfortunately, how a lot of us have uh, have started to think about things. Really, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And your, I guess, your another side of that is like your incompleteness in without that, right? Especially like societally speaking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're socialized, aren't we? To kind of to, I mean, every single ad out there tells us that we're inadequate, and so. Um, to be more to feel adequate, to be whole, we must purchase X, Y, Z, right? Jeans or new this or new that, or we have to have a really, we have to have a partner who fulfills all our needs because that's what, that's what we're told we need, right? We're, we're, and, and so, so hence the, hence the checklist. And I, it's no surprise that we're 
so unha- so many of us are so unhappy in our search for love, right? Even though you know we finally feel like we found someone who meets all our needs, who meets all, who check all the boxes, and then you know within maybe three to five years, maybe ten years, maybe fifteen years, the initial excitement dies off. We stop feeling like we've gr- we're growing with our partner. We we feel like so many things have started to feel a little bit more dim, and then we become disappointed again. And then we're off to searching for something else or perhaps searching for a new version of our partnership with the same person. But whatever it is, we're back to this search, which is derived from disappointment. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Michelle, tell us about some of the other therapies that you use. Well, I I, I talked briefly about SF Momentary earlier, and um, I, I'm not calling that therapy, even though it's tremendously therapeutic um but it's not a traditional therapeutic setting by any means uh we host a lot of dinners and sometimes not even dinners but wine and cheese events um so and the wine and cheese events uh are called drinks with your shrink so it's got a little bit of a you know i'm the shrink component but it's not therapy and then the dinners are really kind of um a space for people to come together and it's more of a prevention model than it is a treatment um, you don't really come in, um, when you're in crisis necessarily, but because you don't want to get to that point. Right. Right. Um, and so what we do there is we have dinner and through food, which is, I think, being in this in this in a city like San Francisco, that's uh, just a no brainer to, to throw in some good food in there and good wine. And then to have people gather around this uh, this modern, modern primordial fire. Right. Which is food in the in the dining room table. And to start talking about things that they wouldn't otherwise talk about, mm-hmm. and I think typical typical dinner conversations can 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 run from very shallow to very deep. Um, but I think that most of us, myself included, on a you know very often on a Tuesday or Wednesday night, if I'm out with friends, I'm not really always wanting to go on a very deep level. So this is a space where you know um, you can have that with your friends. But if you choose to come to the SF Momentary dinners, it's more like you know what you're in for. It's going to, it's going to go a little bit deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and specifically with regard to your emotions and, and stuff like that. Right. Cause that's, yeah. that I guess is a little bit different because you know, a lot of us might be uh, comfortable with the idea of having a deep conversation with some friends, but deep, like philosophically or deep, whatever, mm-hmm. not like, okay, let me kind of pull this bandaid off and show you or like talk about how I feel about these certain things. That's a much more like guarded thing for a lot of people. Yeah, no, it certainly is. And I, I, I actually think that it may sound a bit counterintuitive, but a lot of people have told me that they feel more comfortable speak, ta- sharing and divulging these things with strangers um, than they do with their friends. Um, Cause you, you don't really know if you'll ever see this person again. And, and, you know, we did a dinner with Airbnb uh, last year, last year and it was a it was a bunch of strangers and they don't even live in the city or country you know and they're just going to go off to their respective countries and you'll never see them again yeah and um there's a be- there's a beauty in that i think of, of of sharing something uh tremendously intimate with someone who whom you'll never see again so i think in some ways these dinners can be um more conducive to that and certainly the the couples dinner in the dark that we do um removes that layer of pretension which is kind of our vision we judge people with our you know by by seeing what they're wearing and seeing kind of you know do they fit this stereotype that we have in our minds and so 
and and particularly with our partners when we see our partners sometimes we stop like we say said earlier we don't see their humanity we see that uh this is the guy who never changes a toilet paper or this is the person who nags me all the time and we and so when we look at them we have all these associations that rise that really prevent us from being vulnerable sometimes right so okay this dinner in the dark thing sounds amazing and i really want to come with my wife sometime Explain the concept, because uh, that, that still hasn't really happened yet. It, it, yeah. yeah, tell us what it's all about. All right, so um, dinner in the dark. It's basically a collaboration between SF Momentary, which is my company, and the Blind Cafe, which is a company that's uh, run by Rosh, a friend of mine, whom I I, I met him about a year ago, and um, he runs these dinners called the Blind Cafe, and they're. Um, dinners in the dark and then I run SF Momentary which is therapeutic dinners and so we decided this is sort of a match made in heaven right we can get people to be in a therapeutic dinner in the dark that would be pretty awesome um, so so essentially people come in and they 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 grab their wine and they mingle and they talk and it just it really has has the feel of a of, a, of just a normal dinner right um, but then we lead them into the dark, and before that, we kind of run them through a few kind of meditation exercises, and and kind of kind of let them know, you know, if you freak out, these are the things that you 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 can do, right? Most people don't freak out. I mean, I think people come into this experience knowing what they're getting themselves into, mm-hmm. and so most people are pumped, they're excited, they go into the darkness. It's pitch black, dark, um, and uh, they they the the idea behind these dinners is that you have three things that you can use as tools when you are when you are feeling stressed by either the darkness or the topics that are raised so if you experience any distress you have three distinct tools one is yourself you can use yourself you can ground yourself using a lot of the meditation breathing techniques that we'll teach you uh, two, you have your partner that's next to you you can reach out and ask learn how to ask for what it is you need Right. And have your partner learn how to meet your needs. And then three, you have a, a, a community around you. It's a, these are smaller dinners. And so it's and it's everyone who, you know, lives in this area. So you have your community to ask for help. You can say, hey, guys, I'm feeling X, Y, Z. Can we all pause for a little bit? And there's very little space for judgment. There's actually no judgment in there, I think, simply because nobody knows your voice. Nobody knows who's speaking. They just know that there is a person in this room who is feeling distress. And every single time we've done this, everyone in the room has come together. The partners have come and the person has actually been able to show up for him or herself. Mm. And so this, these these three tools are so beneficial. That's beautiful. Something that, that makes me think of that that would also help is a lot of times in in trying to be communicative and voicing a concern or a problem or an issue that someone's having with within a couple or with a friend or whatever it is we can be not as as specific as we need to be right we can Mm -hmm. just be like i'm annoyed right now or like that's annoying or this is dumb or like i'm scared Mm -hmm. or whatever versus like i imagine at the dinner in the dark it's like okay like well why are you scared and how can i help you are things that the person really needs to say to yeah. the group, to their partner, or to whatever. So it's yeah. this this better way to work through problems, right? To get someone to really fully communicate exactly what the problem is. Right. 
But before you can, you're right. And before you can communicate what the problem is, you have to have identified what the problem is. And I think that's why so many of us, when we say this is dumb and you're pissing me off, I think it's partially because we don't really, we haven't quite identified and pinpointed what exactly about the situation are we triggered by. Yeah. Right. What exactly are we feeling right now? Because if and so that requires a lot of insight, self awareness, and so these dinners are actually. crafted to enhance self-awareness as well as awareness of others if you aren't aware of what's going on internally and what sort of if you're not connecting your own historical dots um to what you're feeling in the present moment you're not going to be able to communicate that to your partner and you're going to put a lot of pressure on your partner to um sort of anticipate uh what your needs might be to meet your needs without getting any clear instructions of what they are and that's a lot of pressure on our partners and we we all do that sometimes mm-hmm. um and so i think this goes back to kind of our expectations from uh, derived from childhood right we we were born and then our mothers or fathers pick us up and we don't really have to say anything we just kind of cry and then someone will come to us and run through a list of things yeah. that could be po- could be wrong and then one maybe maybe they'll get it right and it's actually that we're hungry so they feed us right so we get our needs met simply by just throwing a tantrum, yeah. right? And so we we're, we don't need to really um, express ourselves or even know ourselves. Our parents are sort of expected to know us for us. Mm-hmm. And we kind of carry that forward into our romantic relationships in adulthood. Yeah. So these dinners in the dark um, and, you know, the SF momentary dinners as well, like you said, are more of a... Um, preventative mode sort of thing so couples (laughs) couples going into the dark together should not be like okay we're if this doesn't go well tonight we're getting a divorce for sure (laughs) it's like you know they uh, they should not have a problem like that no so (laughs) let's talk about the concept of just preventative therapy in general and Mm -hmm. like a happy healthy couple going into an event like this so Mm -hmm. like what can they expect exactly and what are they going to get out of this yeah uh Great question, and and yeah, these are these dinners are designed for um, couples who've been together for um, uh, some time. But I mean, I, we've had a we've had a lot of people come in on their first first or second dates too. Um, that's that's pretty courageous. I think that's that takes a lot of balls actually. But yeah. um, but uh, but yeah, so primarily designed for couples who've been together who call themselves a couple. And you're right, it is prevention, um, much like uh, we go. We, we do yoga and, you know, we exercise and we eat well um, to prevent from being sick. And I, and I think that these sort of uh, what I call oil checks, you know, it's not like your car has been totaled, um, but you're just kind of changing your oil. Um, they're, 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 the exercises that we implement in the dinners uh, have to do with sort of deepening the relationship as opposed to fixing the relationship. Hmm. Um, so that comes from a very humanistic sort of uh, client-centered approach where we i do i do firmly believe that people have it in them to to do it they don't people don't really need fixing individuals don't need fixing you know certainly relationships don't necessarily need fixing they just need to be uh more attuned they need more tuning they need more oil they need more sort of um uh sometimes tools to 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 sort of i mean i think a lot of people have a one size fit fits all tool in their toolbox, right? And they think, well, this is this 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 is sort of useful for everything. Um, and I think that these dinners sort of provide people with more tools and uh, more ways to be more connected to each other. 
um, not necessarily with the idea of fixing it. Although when they come out of these dinners, a lot of them do say that they feel much more, um, they feel like their relationship makes a lot more sense. Mm. Right. That makes so much sense to me. I, it's like, if, uh, I mean, it reminds me of when I graduated college and I just had like nothing my first year out of college. And I think I had a screwdriver and that's it. And I need to hang up these pictures on my wall. So I just use the back of the screwdriver as the hammer thing, you yeah. know, like I held the <laughs> screwdriver and hit the nails in the wall with that. And it's like, okay, well that works. But then it's like, all of a sudden someone shows you a hammer. It's like, oh, right. Like that's way better than the screwdriver hammering something. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like going to one of these dinners, it might, you never know, like maybe someone hands you a hammer at the dinner and right. I mean, hopefully not literally because you're in the dark. That could be very dangerous, but you know, <laughs> yeah. figuratively. Right, right. I, I think also these dinners, what we've heard a lot is that they, you know, couples learn a lot about each other's strengths. You know, I think a lot of people go into therapy or they go into these um, these types of therapeutic uh, situations, you know, I don't know, therapy or, um, you know, I don't know, counseling or anything like that. And they feel that they all they all, all they can do is really talk about their weaknesses and their limitations and the parts that aren't doing well. And because this is a prevention model, what we're really doing is enhancing the strengths that each person brings into the relationship. Mm. Um, and the the way to do that is to really help them gain some understanding of of kind of where they feel the least comfortable. So I think that's why we throw them in the dark too, because it's not comfortable. We take away your cell phones, we take away your vision, which which are two pretty you know yeah in this day and age pretty kind of essential things. Yeah. And then we throw you in the basement sometimes in the dark, and then we tell you to connect, right? And so on the on the flip side, it removes a lot of vulnerabilities, so you can actually connect. But on the other end it's undeniably uncomfortable. You know, we don't keep you in there for that long, about an hour or so, but but it's very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Mm. But I think the lesson here is we don't really grow very often in places of comfort. When we're tremendously comfortable, the growth really doesn't happen that often. Yeah, It's just not that possible, right? And growth really happens on the periphery of things, when there's a little bit of chaos, when there's a little bit of discomfort and anxiety and that's okay because we can get through that anxieties those things we can tolerate we're resilient so i saw as well that you do do you do dance therapy is that correct uh movement therapy and dance 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 and movement therapy i don't currently do that i mean i do the movement aspect of it but the dance and movement was actually when i volunteered at a um, at a nonprofit based in oakland called seri it's the center for empowering refugees and immigrants hmm. And so I worked there, I volunteered there with their youth group, as well as uh, the adults there who were survivors of the Khmer Rouge from Cambodia, the killing fields. Wow, yeah. So they survived genocide and uh, they, they, they came here as, as refugees and, um, and, and their kids, their children were born here. So uh, kind of working a lot with them to um, sort of uh, mitigate the effects of trauma again. And then also working with the youth groups because there's a huge cultural and generational divide between their children who are born in the United States versus, you know, the killing fields of Cambodia. So uh, kind of working with both groups using movement and dance. Also because I, I don't I didn't speak their language. I still don't. But I didn't speak their language. They didn't speak mine. And so our we all have a body. And so our bodies kind of transcend cultural language sort of barriers. Yeah. 
So I find that to be pretty effective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, so many chemicals are released in your brain, right? When you're like exercising and moving around a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, just get happier and things, I, I don't know, things seem to become a little bit more clear. Like I personally like love dancing and uh, like I just always feel so clear headed after I'm dancing. And I, and, I, and I feel very much that way, obviously, after the gym, like a lot of people that exercise like to do it in the morning before work because then work seems to go easier. Right. And it makes sense to me that you do these different um, body activities with the people that you're working with, because once you've been moving around your body a little bit, I, I imagine that that kind of lubricates the rest of the talking part, like it lubricates the yeah. session. Yeah. No, no, it ab- I, I, I absolutely think it does, and um, I'm starting to, you know, to kind of ma- to kind of go back to your initial question of, you know, what is it like to be doing things that are kind of outside of what's considered normal and and conventional psychological treatment? Um, you know, I, I really believe that even though it's there's a lot of value to traditional psychotherapy, I think that um, one thing that we don't really have. Uh, we don't have the luxury of observing our patients outside of our four walls, right? We don't have the luxury to kind of actually even converse with them. And that's some valuable data that we're missing out on because we're relying solely on a person's report, which again, I see a lot of value because objectively what's true is sometimes not as important as what someone's subjective experience of themselves in the world is. So that's definitely uh, valuable. But I also think that there's a lot of value to taking clients out to the park or I do Muay Thai. So, you know, bringing them to a Muay Thai gym and having them hit pads for an hour and then kind of, you know, having some sort of a, a, a therapeutic sort of a coaching session sort of a thing, you know, outside of what often feels very sterile and very kind of confining, uh, you know, what I'm referring to therapy, traditional therapy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, to to the the mere neurons part and doing something together, it's like the, the physical activity is this thing that we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. And like now that we're talking, we might disagree, but there was this physical thing that we both just shared a second ago, you right. know? So there's a, a part of that, that that probably like softens the blow. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I I think that traditional psychotherapy can get really intellectual, and and sort of stay that way sometimes. Um, even when we're talking about sort of emotional experiences or, um, you know, things like that, that that still we're still talking about the emotional experience, or we're still you know, it, and even with the drama therapy, I think um, that's it's still it's good. Um, but I think that it would be even nicer to bring people outside. Um, the, the traditional four walls and to see kind of how we can uh, provide healing out in the community too. And, and certainly more, certainly less stigmatized, I would imagine. Yeah. So, so Michelle, one thing I want to touch on before we wrap up here is I know that you are a supporter of, of being able to be sad and like being able to have a bad time and like opening yourself up to that fact and not like beating yourself up that you're having a bad day or, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. How how can we mitigate that with also just being in a full on rut and like not like allowing ourselves to feel sadness but not getting swallowed up by it? Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a it's a good question. It's a really good question, actually. Um, 
you know, I, I think that there's always a fear that we have that we're going to get swallowed up by things. We're going to get swallowed up by our partners and we're going to lose our identities. We're going to get swallowed up by sadness and never leave our beds. We're going to get, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I think that this fear, um, you know, I, and I had a veteran once tell me that he didn't cry once since the Vietnam War because he was afraid that the minute he started crying, he would never be able to stop. Mm. Right. So there is a fear that we all have, I think, innately that uh, when we open the floodgates, we're not going to be able to control what comes out and we're not going to be able to sort of contain it again. Um, and so but while I do understand that and I, I myself sometimes feel that same way, um, I think that that sort of re- severely limits our ability to uh, know ourselves because I think that a lot of important information lies in our sadness and the emotions that we don't want to feel are precisely the ones that we can learn a lot about ourselves from. So I often say sort of uh, that if we invite our emotions, you know, like the Rumi poem, The Guest House, right? You invite all the emotions into your house, good or bad, um, and and you, you know, I, I, I sometimes I tell my patients, you know, to talk to them, to talk to these emotions that you don't want to... Um, you don't want to experience, which obviously sounds really strange. Um, but I, you know, you can imagine kind of having them over for tea, right? Instead of shutting them out in the cold, ha- have, have, have an emotion over for tea, right? So an emotion that you don't, you don't really, uh, want to have and a- ask it questions. Be curious because this isn't really, um, they're not there for no reason. We don't experience anything just because our bodies decided or our minds decided to just throw in that emotion for fun. Every single emotion contains valuable data about ourselves and we can learn a lot from it. And particularly the ones that we don't want to feel can tell us about our limitations and what we're comfortable with and what we're not comfortable with so that we can better set boundaries for ourselves so that we can better nurse ourselves back to health. Mm. If we don't tap into that, how do we know how to take care of ourselves? Very good point. So good mental health um, does not, like we were saying earlier, does not equate to positive mental health. And I think what you said about the having those negative emotions over for tea and all that is so poignant because because of the fact that a lot of us try to keep negative emotions at arm's distance or whatever it is, that the times that we do experience negative emotions or the times that something does go bad in our day or, you know, so we even have just like a quick fleeting negative emotion or whatever it is, are the way that we handle that might not be entirely healthy. And I think that's probably a lot of the, therefore, uh, negative stereotype that we put on negative emotions, right? Is mm-hmm. because we're like, oh, well, look at the way that I act or look at the way that I handled that. And it's right. like, well, that's that's because you're so unfamiliar with like a, a, a decent way to handle that emotion because mm-hmm. you're trying to not get to know it. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I guess, if you spent some time getting to know it, um, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't like act out as much when you were having a negative emotion. Absolutely. And, and I, and I think that that resistance to pain, as opposed to accepting pain and allowing the waves of pain to kind of come and go and, and, uh, and sort of complete its cycle, so to speak, is so important. When we resist that pain, we, we create suffering and, and we create all kinds of ways to mask over it, to not feel it, to pretend it doesn't exist. And that is what prolongs the pain even more. And that's what, you know, John Kabat-Zinn describes as suffering, right? So that that's that's not necessary. We don't we don't need to suffer, but we we all need to experience pain. Right? Hmm. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, Michelle, if you 
could give the listeners just one single piece of advice, only one oh, gosh. for like <laughs> sound mental health, if it was to like get more activity, to have a good relationship with pain, whatever it is, what is like the number one thing that you think that people are missing out on that they should be doing? Um, I think that m- I would encourage people to um, grow, to, to not be afraid of growing, to not be afraid of stretching outside of what feels comfortable to them. Um, and that requires, as, as we were talking about earlier, to be in states of discomfort and anxiety and to sit in those um, and to not get too comfortable. I would encourage people not to get too comfortable, actually. Hmm. I, I, had a, I had a professor, um, uh, a Zimbardo, uh, who's kind of, you wrote that, he did the Stanford Prisoners Experiment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, brilliant guy. The one thing he told me is your job as a therapist is to make people squirm. And I've always kind of remembered that. Is because we we need to squirm a little bit more in this life because yeah. that's where growth comes from. Because meanwhile, somewhere inside of that person, they were already squirming anyways. Like they weren't acknowledge, you know, they weren't saying it out loud, I guess, or they weren't yeah. acknowledging it to themselves. But some piece was. Yeah. And if you pull that to the surface, then yeah, it's interesting. And we can all squirm together. We don't have to do this alone. Yeah, so. man, such a great point, <laughs> Michelle. Thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, it's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby. I should totally be on this show then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.